Let's turn our cell phones off. I think this morning, uh, our discussion, especially our time in the Word, is going to be really, really important. So the less distractions, the better, right? So uh, I have this, uh, maybe it's me, I have a fancy phone. It's got an off, on-off button on it. Does anyone else have that feature on their phone? Uh, there's also this thing called Mute. Uh, I don't recommend Vibrate. It's still, that can still be a distraction, but Mute is an awesome, awesome one. So, um, boy, uh, a month ago, I got, a, uh, I got a, a thing in the mail, and it said, uh, you are summoned for jury duty. How, ma- hey, how many of you are really excited when you get that note in the mail? Like, oh, great, right? Like, for me, I mean, I understand it's part of, you know, doing our part as citizens in our country. And, uh, but let's just be honest. Inconvenient? Yeah. Burdensome? Yeah. So the only thing that I really, like, the number one item on my prayer list for a whole month was, when I call the night before, let me be excused. <laughs> how many of you have actually prayed? Yeah. Hey, God answers the big things, God answers the small things, right? So I called, got the automated thing, I was excused. So Lord knows I don't want to sit in one of those things. So I think in my life I've been called, uh, summoned for jury duty three times. And every time you got four, anyone five? Any f- five? Okay, five, wow, you're lucky. So, uh, so I, you know, the, the very first time I got called for jury duty, I, I actually got called to go down to the court, you know, Parked my car in the garage, got my validation, and I just kept rehearsing in my head, if I get called to be on a jury, I'm just going to remember the words of Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth! Like, I, I felt like that was the best preparation for jury duty, but I did not get picked for a jury, so uh, I'll have to save that you can't handle the truth line for some, some other time, but... Uh, I mean, it, it's a fascinating process, right? Our, our judicial process is a fascinating one. And, and uh, I mean, books have been written. John Grisham has made millions off of writing uh, about uh, the judicial system. Uh, we love courtroom dramas. There's a reason why there's like CSI, Yuma, and all this stuff. Is, is there that one yet? Or a special victims unit, Tuba City, or something like that. Um, but, uh, but we're all interested in the whole trial process, Right? And, and we wish that justice was blind, right? In every courtroom, there's that image of the, of the, the scales of justice and the, 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 blind, um, the blind woman who's basically saying, you know, everyone in this room will get a fair trial. And uh, yet we come to one of the most famous trials in all of human history this morning, and that's the trial of, of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, this is not the only time Jesus has been put on trial. Matter of fact, if you, if you Google it, I don't recommend it because you'll just go down this this wormhole that will never end. Uh, 1970, an Arizona lawyer decided to file a suit against Jesus to the amount of $100,000 for damages done to his secretary's house when lightning struck it. So the lawyer basically said, well, insurance said that uh, this is an act of God and we're going to go ahead and sue Jesus. And um, luckily, it was uh, the case was thrown out because here's the thing, like, you know, you're, you're, you're banking on that, the, that Jesus is not going to show up to the, to the court date, right? But part of me is going, I'm pretty sure you don't want to find yourself in a courtroom opposite of Jesus, because I heard the cross-examination could be pretty brutal. It's exactly what we have this morning. We're going we're gonna to look at the, the trials of Christ in a different way, because what you need to understand when it comes to the Bible, Jesus wasn't put on trial. Everyone who tried Jesus themselves were the ones put on trial. We've got to look at the, the passage in Luke 22, 23 this morning. Turn there in your Bibles. If you, if you brought them, I hopefully you did. Jesus is not the one that's put on trial. See, we, we think, oh man, wicked men, wicked women arrested Jesus and, and, and got him crucified. You guys need to understand something this, this morning. It wasn't wicked people that crucified Jesus. This was the foreordained plan of God to deliver his son up to save wretched people like you and me. This is no accident. We, we, I think we approach the scripture and think, oh no, this is getting out of hand. This is exactly what God had predetermined. The son of man lays down his own life to save his sheep. Is that awesome or what? 
God is in full control of the situation. And if anyone is put on trial, it's everyone that Jesus encounters at this moment before his crucifixion. Matter of fact, there are five scenes I want us to look at this morning. And each scene reveals more about our hearts than it does Jesus. See, every person that is going to try to put Jesus on trial actually gets cross-examined themselves. And what we're going to see this morning is that the gospel message is able to pierce all different types of hearts, but it's going to pierce hearts nonetheless. And so we turn to the, the scripture this morning, and what you're going to find is that Jesus is innocent. Matter of fact, you put Jesus on trial today, no fault could be found with Christ. Even though we want to constantly try Jesus, and I think we want to constantly try Jesus, put him on trial, because we're afraid of what he's going to expose within our own hearts. See, this morning is about looking at Christ preparing to go to the cross, but honestly coming before God with our own hearts. And, and maybe this morning God's going to address something with, with you. We're going to look at five different types of hearts. And... I know if you don't meet or identify with any one of the hearts, the last heart we're all going to identify with, and, and you'll see why here in a moment. Turn to Luke 22. We're going to go from 22 into 23. We're going to cover a lot of territory this morning, so um, let's, let's dive into this. So look at Luke 22, verse 54. We already looked at this last week. Having been arrested, right, they led Jesus away and brought him to the house of the high priest. You can write down your Bible, Annas. That's his name, A-N-N-A-S, Annas. He was a retired high priest. Then you skip to verse 66. Actually, we'll go to 62, 63. And the men who were holding Jesus in custody at Annas' house were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him. They decided, hey, let's play the prophecy game. We're going to hit you, and you're going to have to tell us who hit you. Just constant insult, injury. Prophesy, who's the one who hit you? Verse 64, verse 65. And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And when it was day, the council of the elders gathered, both chief priests, scribes, they led him away to their council chamber. And they said, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, I, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further evidence do we need? We have his testimony. We've heard it from his own mouth. So then they brought the whole group of them to Pilate's house. And they began to accuse him, chapter 23, verse 2, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So now the narration's changed, right? They, they're trying to get him on the, on the hook of blasphemy, but the whole story changes when it comes to Pilate. You're going to see why here in a moment. Pilate asked him, saying, Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate will find no guilt with Jesus at least three times. At least three times. This guy is not guilty at all. But they kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard that he was a man from Galilee, he said, you know what? Let's go ahead and send him to Herod's jurisdiction. And sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time for Passover. So Pilate had a, had a home in Passover, uh, at, in Jerusalem at Passover, and Herod had a place in Jerusalem at Passover. Herod was also very glad that he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him, was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, and he answered him nothing. Jesus spoke not a word to Herod. You'll see why here in a moment. And he questioned him at some length, and he answered him. He did not answer him. Chief priests, scribes were standing there accusing him uh, intensely. Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So you ever heard the phrase kangaroo court? That's what's going on here. No one wants to handle 
this guy. The only motive behind all of this is just to get the guy executed. Let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. So Herod and Pilate, verse 12, this is interesting, became friends with one another that very day. Why? Because they both just had this, this disdain for Christ. They just wanted him out of, their, out of their lives. These guys were not buddies, just FYI. For they had been in enmity with one another. Verse 13, so Pilate summoned the chief priests, rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, I have examined him, and I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Again, he's innocent. No, nor has Herod. So by, by inference, Herod's also found him not guilty. So four times, Jesus is found to be innocent. Therefore, guess what I'm going to do? I'll punish him and release him. Here's compromise. I'll beat him up a little bit and then release him and let this just be a done deal. I now, uh, now he says I was obliged to release them at the feast, one prisoner. So it was custom to say it's Passover time. The people get one prisoner released. So he presents to them a prisoner by the name of Barabbas. Verse 18. And they all cried out, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. And so you know, verse 19, he was one who was thrown into prison for being an insurrectionist, and he was also a murderer. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, addressed them again, said, wait, 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 before you guys make any hasty decisions, who do you want me to release to you? And again, the, they called out, verse 21, crucify, crucify him, pointing to Jesus. He said to him a third time, what evil has this man done? He's, try, he's, he's defending Jesus. I think we, get, we give Pilate a bad rap. He's trying to defend Jesus like this guy's innocent. And they found in him no guilt, demanding death, and therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent, verse 23, that word almost says there's a mob beginning to develop. Things are getting out of hand. And with a loud voice asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate announced sentence that their demand should be granted. He caved to their mob mentality. And he released the man that they were going to ask for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. So there's, there's five things we need to navigate here. Six trials total for Jesus. All of them against the law. All of them illegal trials. The fact that they had held court uh, during the middle of the night was, was, was not according to law. The fact that they had no witnesses was uh, against the law. That the fact that they had uh, no specific charge against them other than blasphemy was against the law. Uh, the fact they were going to make a hasty decision and not uh, rely on a vote to get rid of Jesus was against the law. This whole preceding, this whole series of, of trials was against the law. And yet we see some very important things here in this narrative. First is this. Annas is the first one that's put on trial. See, it's not Jesus before Annas. It's Annas before Jesus. And the topic with this is, a, is an angry heart. Annas was the high priest who is now retired but still exercised a lot of influence in the land. Annas, and you may want to write by, in your notes this, this, he was the one in charge of the money collected in the temple courtyard when Jesus went in and overthrew all the money changers and all the tables. This is the guy whose pocketbook was impacted when Jesus went in and decided, we're going to open up a can right now. Annas had been nursing anger towards Christ for a long time. And now here is Jesus, who financially impacted this man's life, said, guess what we're going to do? We're going to beat you up a little bit. There was nothing substantive that happened. You can write down John 18. This is, there's a little conversation that goes back and forth between Annas and, and Jesus. And all Jesus says to Annas in John 18 is this, um, call witnesses because you're, you're accusing me of something. Go ahead and call some witnesses. But they couldn't. They couldn't. Jesus had a generally good reputation in the land. It's these leaders that have this, this issue. And I'm going to tell you something that when you start to affect people's pocketbooks, they get a little angry. 
And angry people get angry with others, and their anger right now is being projected onto Christ, and they're just injuring him after injury after injury. And I'm going to tell you something this morning, you guys. It is easy to mock what is not appreciated. With Annas and his, his, his soldiers, these guys have no appreciation for Christ. Why? All their concern is about their power, their positions, their wealth. And we need to understand, and just so you know, that's anus, not anus. So I, I don't know uh, whose translation we're using uh, this morning up on the screen, but uh, uh, it's anus. So um, I just noticed that. And like a, like a dog, who I get distracted easily with. Um, God can deal with even the angriest of hearts. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are angry with God because they look at God as if, You've negatively impacted my life. You took my mom away from me, and now I'm angry with you. You caused my marriage to fall apart. Now I'm angry with you. I'm not in the career that I ultimately wanted to, to choose, and now I'm angry with you. And I'm going to tell you right now that God has a, has a word for those of us this morning that says, I want to love you as you are, where you are, and I understand your anger, but the most important thing is for you to know me. That I'm a God who loves you. I'm a God who's going to lay down my life for you. We can learn a lot of lessons this morning. The fact is that oftentimes we don't appreciate what God has given to us, and we're angry over the things that God has either not given to us or taken away from us. My prayer is that we become like Job. Not that I'm praying for suffering for any one of us. But Job said this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of our God. Right? That's how, that's how you quell anger. God has the right to take anything away from us. He has the right to do whatever he needs to do in our lives. Here's the thing, you can't let, whatever circumstances you're going through, you can't let it rob you of your appreciation that you are one created in his image. If you don't appreciate God, you will mock the ways and works of God, and that is never a good place to get to. So we see Annas on, oh, someone changed it. Look how quick we are on this. So, so now we move from injury and insult to inquiry, uh, Caiaphas on trial, point number two. So this is the unbelieving heart. This is really the Caiaphas represents the Sanhedrin. This is all the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the, uh, the, the Sadducees, the, the scribes. He's the one who's really in charge of the entire religious pulse of the, of the nation. And these guys were unbelieving from the start. I mean, these are the, these are the guys that Jesus had the run in with the entire three plus years of earthly ministry. And they were unbelieving. Look at verse uh, 66 of chapter 22. So there they are, the council of the elders, also known as the Sanhedrin. They are continuing to just badger Jesus. Just tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus is kind of like, I've been telling you guys this for, for years. I am, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, right? He's, he said this time and time again. Now, you need to understand, this is morning time. So uh, Annas and the, and the soldiers bring Jesus Knock on the door of Caiaphas' house early in the morning. Caiaphas doesn't want to be bothered, but here's Jesus, and they're going to they're gonna try to get to a damning verdict quickly. And so here they are, and the charge is this, that we're going to arrest Jesus on theological grounds, blasphemy. What's blasphemy? It's when you claim to be God, because only God can be God. And if you try to equate yourself with God, that's blasphemous. Jesus declares this. Look at verse 70, circle the phrase, yes, I am. That, those words, I am, take us right back to Exodus when Moses met God at the burning bush and, and God said, who shall I say sent me? Some I am sent you. I was in a, a religious studies class at Arizona State University, which seems like an oxymoron, right? Religious studies, ASU, yeah, well, they, they do go together. I was this close to being a religious studies minor, switched to history, because you've done a semester earlier, yay. But I'm in class, New Testament class, taught by Dr. Charles Emerson, who I actually spent time with outside of class. Uh, but he was part of this group called the Jesus Seminar 
group. And if you don't know anything about the Jesus Seminar, these are the guys who basically don't believe in the deity of Jesus. They don't believe in the miracles of Jesus. They don't believe in the crucifixion, burial, resurrection. So, and he's also a pastor at a church, which you sit there and go, how do you even wrap your mind around that? Here's a class of 150 students. Dr. Emerson says, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus call himself God. I'm sitting there going, hmm, that's not true. Raise my hand. He says, yes, Mr. Morgan. Uh, what about this passage? I, all of a sudden, I start rattling off passages. And you can tell Dr. Emerson, I, I was respectful. I wasn't a jerk. So point number one is when you disagree with someone, don't be a jerk about it, all right? Uh, I raised my hand. I, I, I countered and said respectfully, Dr. Emerson, what about this? What about this? After about five, six references to New Testament passages, Dr. Emerson thought it would be a good time to change subject. So, uh, but what was really cool is that there's, and, this, and ASU, you need to understand, if you send your kids to ASU, if you've been to ASU, you know the number one objective when it comes to religious studies at ASU is not to get to the heart of understanding religions. It's the shake of faith of those who would call themselves evangelicals. And they make this clear. Day one, you're in New Testament class, right? And they're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust that in this class, you will have your faith shaken and you will walk away from Christianity. Sounds like a really good objective to me, right? So I'm in class. I'm, I'm countering, like, because here's the assumption. The assumption is that the teacher doesn't want students to explore for themselves. I'm just going to take what Dr. So-and-so says, and I'm just going to take it at face value. Well, it is, a, it is a lie to consider the fact that nowhere in the Bible does, does, does Jesus call himself God or equate himself with deity. Ladies and gentlemen, we just saw one. This is why Jesus was crucified, because he equated himself as God with God and as God, and we see this throughout the scripture. So uh, Dr. Emerson and I had several lunches, uh, had a great relationship, but we agreed to disagree. And now here's the thing. The power of an unbelieving heart will reject evidence even when it's presented to them. This is what the Sanhedrin do. This is what Caiaphas does. See, Jesus is with these guys, and he's, he's almost, you know, just kind of, like, I've told, how many times have I told you guys who I am? The evidence is right there in front of your face. It doesn't matter what he tells them. These guys are hardened and helpless. Their refusal to accept him as the Messiah is equated to blindness and ignorance of Scripture. They're blind and ignorant. Why? Because so many times I think we also walk in unbelief because our God doesn't match our preconceived notion of who we think God should be. You know why they rejected Jesus? Because he didn't fit their mold. I'm going to tell you right now, if you have a mold for your God, throw away that mold right now. Because whenever you try to fit Jesus or God into your mold, it will only lead to unbelief. You need to allow God to be that God who expresses himself in ways that you would never have ever figured out yourself. Two-thirds of our Bible is called the Older Testament. And I like, called it, I like to call it Older Testament. Jesus had, there were prophecies about the coming Messiah that these guys plainly miss. Why? Because he didn't fit their mold of what a Messiah should be. You can't have the truth, Jesus says, because you've already rejected the truth. He says to them that once you willingly oppose the truth, the, there's no way you will ever open yourself up to the truth. You've already rejected it. And here's the hardest heart of all, the heart that refuses any proof, any reason, that refuses to admit what it knows, because deep down inside every single person, they know there is a God. I saw a car the other day, and, and I was a little bit, I was excited about the car, but I also got angry about this car. Because on the back windshield and big letters, and if, and if this person that owns this car is here today, you just need to understand my heart, okay? In big, bold letters on the back of their car window, you know there is a God. Romans chapter 1. Big, bold letters. That's all it says. And part of me is going, yeah, I agree with that. But secondly, what is someone supposed to do if they read the back of your car? It, it doesn't resolve. Here's the, here's the reality is that everyone knows there's a God. Now, are there a lot of people who are intellectually dishonest? Yes. Because Romans 1 says we suppress the truth. 
in unrighteousness. This is, this is what leads to unbelief. When we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, I, I love the fact that the car brought to, to the surface what everyone needs to understand is that we all know. God has set eternity in our hearts according to Ecclesiastes. Every person born into this world has this indelible mark upon their life that says there is a creator and that creator wants us to be dependent upon him, to be accountable to him, but we reject that truth, right? The car gave us half the message, but it didn't give us the complete message. See, the car only perpetuates more unbelief, doesn't tell us, well, what are we to believe? Well, what you're to believe is that Christ is the Messiah, and so we come to this passage, and we sit there and go, this has been going on for, for decades. I, I watched an interview with Alice Cooper. So if, those of you who don't know Alice Cooper, his real name is Vincent Fournier. He lives here in the valley. Uh, he came to know Jesus years ago. Uh, I've actually been a part of some of his fundraisers in the past. His wife was in the choir at the church that God saved me in. His wife was instrumental in leading him to the Lord. He was just interviewed this last week, and he said this. It was really interesting. He said, people go out of their way to not believe in Jesus. People will go out of their way to not believe in Jesus. We would rather confirm in our hearts the rejection of Jesus than be open to the conviction that we know is there of the evidence that he truly is who he says he is. We'd rather embrace the confirmation and rejection than be open up to the conviction of the evidence that's there. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no more evidence the person that says, I need to know more, guess what? That is just, that's the hardest heart there is. I have atheists in my family that I have pleaded with for, for years and years and years, and this part of me goes, there's no more evidence. What are you looking for? Creation gives evidence that there's a God. The miracle of Jesus not only being crucified but buried and res risen again is evidence, right? And, and Matthew Henry says it so good. He says, none are so blind as those who will not see. Stop being dis, just intellectually dishonest. That's what I want to say to the chaplain who was just appointed at Yale, if you didn't hear about this. So Yale University back in the day actually was a God-honoring institution. Jonathan Edwards was the president at one point. If you don't know about Edwards, greatest mind ever produced in American soil. His most famous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I read it as a freshman in a public high school. Wow. Edwards at one time was president of Yale University. I think he was 21, 22, insane. Well, Yale has, uh, has definitely changed. They just appointed a chaplain to oversee all the other chaplains. I'm wondering how many chaplains Yale has. I think it's in the 40s. 40 chaplains to look after students. Well, they appointed the head chaplain, who himself is an atheist. And you're sitting there going, wait, an atheist chaplain? Yeah, does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. But when you think of Yale, what you think of is this intellectually stout bastion of education. And they think that intellectualism is going to, it's going to win out the day. They, they've long gone, long time ago walked away from God. They've, they've walked away from what we call veritas, the truth. And they appoint an atheist to be the head chaplain. His name is Greg Epstein. I love what it says here because what they're trying to do is they're trying to cater to these younger generations that say, yeah, there's no God. You know, and so how do we live being skeptics? How do we live as if there was no God? Their goal, and it says, he says, we want to understand what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life. Now stop right there. Mr. Epstein, in all, with all due respect, you claim there is no God. Matter of fact, he wrote a book called Good Without God, which in and of itself is fa a fallacy. So what you need to do is write two, those two words down from his one sentence, good and ethical. Write down those words because without God, who defines what is good and what is ethical? He goes on to say that we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. And I go, how's that worked out so far? For being so intellectually astute, I sit there and go, that's just blindness and ignorance. Who defines what is 
good? Who defines what is ethical? See, when you start trying to define those terms without a God, that is the, 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 the pit of unbelief. Because deep down inside, here's the issue. It's not evidence, it's accountability. Write down that word, accountability. When you know there's a God, and he's written his law upon your hearts, and you don't do the things that he has designed you to do, you feel that burden. You feel the weight of that. And either it allows you to be hardened because you refuse to come to know God, or you experience the freedom because you realize that the evidence of who Jesus was and that he did what he said he was going to do is the thing that melts that hard-heartedness and opens you up now to live a life of liberation and freedom. That's what Jesus is trying to do with these religious leaders. Notice what Jesus says. Look at, look at verse 68, 69. Here's what, I, I love how Jesus says, you know, I've pretty much already told you guys who I am. Either you accept it or not. But just so you know, I'm not the one on trial here. You're the ones on trial because one day, soon, I will be seated at the right hand of God. And guess who will be judging whom? <laughs> it's almost like Jesus is like digging in the dagger. He, he cites two passages. Write these down. Daniel 7, Psalm 110. Daniel 7 has to do with his person. He's the son of man who is now ascended into heaven and seated. And then Psalm 110 is the position. Not only is he the person of God, but he holds the position of God. And Psalm 110 is the famous passage that says he will put all his enemies as a footstool under his feet. So he, and I just love his like, his snarkiness. Can I say that Jesus was snarky? He's like, you guys realize if you don't bow to me, you're, you're going to be placed as enemies under my feet. So you can either allow me to reign in your hearts now, or you will reluctantly one day be forced to bow and worship me and, 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 and bow before me forever, not in worship, but in punishment. Wow. And, and I think this is good too. And let me just tease out a real quick application. For anyone ha who has stood before people and experienced injustice, because Christ is obviously innocent of all the charges brought before this group. Here's what Jesus promises. Nothing you experience when it comes to injustice will ever go, will never go unpunished by God. He knows. Can, can I just let you know this morning, right here, right now, for any one of us who has ever experienced any sort of injustice in our life, every one of us who has been betrayed, any one of us who's been overlooked, any one of us who's been abused, anyone who's been mistreated, Christ knows what that's like. He has entered into it, and he shows us that not only is he standing with us right now, but one day he will make all wrongs right. And I heard an amen from somebody. Can I hear someone say amen on this side? You may never get vindicated this side of eternity, but God guarantees that he will vindicate your cause when you're with him forever. No matter what mistreatment and injustice you experience now, he says, I will be seated at the right hand of God and I will come in power and I will be the God who's for you, not against you. Man, that's good. Point number three. Tarot on trial. Here's the hedonistic heart. So we've seen the angry heart. We've seen the unbelieving heart. How about the hedonistic heart? What is hedonism? It's just someone who's a pleasure seeker, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is their motto. Herod was that guy. So we look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 23. We go to Pilate's house. So again, this is early in the morning. And, and the Jews may have been excited to, to entertain Jesus in this kangaroo court early in the morning, but, you know, a Roman official like Pilate did not want to be disturbed early in the morning with this, with this, this, this situation. So they wake Pilate up, they knock him on the door, they bring Jesus, right? We're going to talk about Pilate here in a moment. Pilate's just kind of hearing what they're saying, and, and remember, they're accusing Jesus on, on theological grounds, blasphemy. They change their tune with Pilate, because Pilate doesn't care whether Jesus is calling himself God or not. 
So they change it into a political issue. He's, he's claiming to be king. He's, he's saying don't pay taxes, right? He is appealing to the political nature of who Pilate is. Pilate hears and says, I don't, you know what? I don't see any evidence of this. Uh, you say he's from Galilee? Send him to Herod. Look at verse 6. Pilate heard he was a Galilean. So here's what you need to understand about Pilate. And we're going to see this here, is that Pilate is a man who just didn't have a lot of conviction. He just was looking to just get rid of, just, he just wanted the easy train. He says, wait, he's from Galilee, send him to Herod. Let, it, let Herod take care of him. So verse 6, so we're going to skip, we're going to come back to Pilate. Pilate, uh, Pilate heard, he said, where's this man from? He's a Galilean. They said, well, send him to Herod. Herod, verse 8, was very glad that he could see Jesus. He had never met Jesus before. He'd always wanted to meet him, but you want to see why he wanted to meet Jesus? He thought Jesus was a circus sideshow. Notice what Herod says. I want to see Jesus perform a magic trick. That, that was his motive. Background on Herod. This guy was sleeping around with people even in his own family. He was just a sick person. John the Baptist confronted him on, on his, his uh, marital arrangement, said this is not of God. Herod just said, well, you're a dead man. Uh, the girl came out and danced, and Herod was so smitten with this woman's dance. He said, ask whatever you wish. She says, I want John the he uh, Baptist's head on a platter. He says, done. Kills John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. You don't mess with J.C.'s cuz. You know what I'm saying? So... Herod says, do a trick for me. Jesus says nothing to Herod. Only time in the Gospels Jesus doesn't answer somebody. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. He will engage you if you have a sincere interest in him. But because he knows your heart better than you know your heart, he has the right to refuse engagement with you if you don't come to him in sincerity. In a sense, I think Jesus' is, is silence is saying to Herod, you've heard my cousin already say to you everything I would ever say to you. And you rejected that. What am I, I going to say to you? Plus, you, you, you took his life. And Herod's just trying to get anything from Jesus and doesn't. So what does Herod do? turns and beats him, mocks him, puts a royal robe upon him. Again, not out of respect, but just to mock Christ all the more. So here's what we see. We see this guy who is not interested in faith, but he's interested in fascination. He's interested in entertainment. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you come to God, you need to understand that some of you are coming to God with the wrong motives. God is not your little circus sideshow, right? You don't presume upon the holiness and righteousness and awesomeness of God and think he's your little, little, side, little side monkey. You know, you, you're the little monkey grinder out there. Like, if I just do this, my little God's going to jump around. I'm going to tell you right now that our God is not that kind of God who just bends through every whim and pleasure of, of your will. Some of you have experienced the silence of God why? Because you're coming to him with wrong motives. God does not owe you an answer. God doesn't owe you an explanation. God knows why you're coming to him, and you're not coming to him because you want to worship him. You're coming to him because you want to use him for your own fleshly desires. He does not answer Herod, because Herod is not a sincere seeker. Only time in scriptures it happens. But everyone else comes to Jesus. Why? Because they understand where their lives are at. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, people like you and me. Yep, look at your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. Don't, don't do it mean-like, okay? <laughs> then we go to Pilate. So Herod's just like, well, this has been a waste of my time. 
I didn't get the little sideshow, the little entertainment I wanted. So send them back to Pilate. So second trial with Pilate, here's what we see is that Pilate is the indecisive heart. It's the heart that lacks conviction. It's the heart that falls towards complacency. It's the heart that sometimes reveals so much about who we are as men and women. So here is Pilate on trial. And it would seem that, you know, Pilate has obviously found this man innocent. See, whereas he's on the trumped up charges of blasphemy with the religious leaders, with the political leaders, they're trying to get him guilty on the count of being a revolutionary. He's trying to stir up this revolution. He's, he is a person who's telling people to not pay taxes, which wasn't true. Right? He's a, he's a person where they say, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding people to pay taxes. Right? And he's even calling himself king. So now this changes from being Messiah, which would mean a lot in the Jewish context. But now he calls himself king, which would now mean a, 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 a fight for the throne. And this is why Pilate says, do you call yourself a king? He says, I am who you say I am. But Pilate's looking at him, and this guy's been beat up. Jesus has been beat up all night long. And I think Jesus looks at this, the, the figure of this man and says, he's no king. We have nothing to worry about. Look at him. So he doesn't even entertain this at all. He says, I find this man innocent. Now there's a couple things you need to understand with Pilate that happened in other gospel accounts. Matthew, his wife has a dream. And says, there's a man, Jesus, that I don't want you to have anything to do with. She was disturbed by this dream. And so Pilate now gets this message from his wife that says, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. John tells us in his gospel account that there's this increasing sense of Pilate's wonder. And he begins to fear the person of Jesus himself by what's being presented. As a matter of fact, John has this incredible back and forth where Jesus says, I have come to bring the truth. And then Pilate says one of the most powerful questions all the Bible, three words, what is truth? Matter of fact, write that question down in your notes. What is truth? And then they shift from talking about truth to authority. And Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to take your life? And then Jesus counters with, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from my father from above. So you get this like, this little spicy conversation going on. But here's the thing you need to understand. And again, I'm not saying Pilate's a good guy. I'm saying Pilate was put in a position that I think there's this, there's this sense of I, he wanted to do what was right, but he lacked the conviction to do it. Matter of fact, it comes out in two ways. The first one is this. There's a problem with seizing power. Here's what Pilate loved more than people. He loved his position. He'd already been in trouble with Tiberius Caesar because he allowed there to be some bloodshed happen in Jerusalem that it, it really backfired on Pilate. And you know what Tiberius Caesar did? He put him on probation. History tells us that Pilate was put on probation and, and Tiberius Caesar said this, if you allow one more incident to happen, you're done. So here's what Pilate was concerned with more than helping people, saving his own butt. He was all about seizing power, and he wasn't about seizing God. And I use that phrase intentionally, and I want you to know something this morning. That you will always be indecisive if God is not your first pursuit. Write that down. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things will be added to you. I'm not saying God doesn't care about your job. And I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to be a person, man, woman of influence. Here's what I'm going to tell you right now is that Pilate did not want God first. He wanted to save his position first. And if you try to seize position more than you seize God, you're going to lead an indecisive life. You will be prone to complacency. And a hundred years from now, what will you be known as? I'm going to tell you right now, nothing. 
Can I, can I just be totally truthful with you, with you this morning? I'm going to tell you this. Friend, I guarantee 100 years from now, the only thing that will, be seen, that will seem significant to you is where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ. 100 years from now, whatever position, whatever home, whatever car, whatever education you pursued and you didn't pursue God, it is not going to matter 100 years from now. What's going to matter is where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Pilate did not have this conviction. He allowed worldly enticement steal his heart away from a heavenly appointment. There's a problem with seizing anything but God. Here's my encouragement to you. Seize Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you'll get everything else that your hearts desire. I'm not saying it's a blank check to get, you know, oh, you told me I'd be getting that Tesla if I got Jesus. No, I didn't. But I'm going to tell you, when you have Jesus and your heart is now put at rest, you have confidence that God will give you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Second problem with Pilate. He was a people pleaser. Any people pleasers here? Oh, this is a word for you. I love priding myself in that I'm not a people pleaser. See, all right, so while he was more concerned about preserving his position than he was preserving the life of an innocent man, he's also indecisive in being kind of ruled by the mob mentality, as we see in this passage, right? See, not only was he trying to appease his own conscience, he's also trying to appease the hostile crowds at the same time. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you try to choose this middle of the road path, where, you know what, I'm going to try to allow Jesus to live and yet appease the chief priests and the Jewish rulers wishing to satisfy all people, you end up satisfying nobody. Mark tells us that Pilate wished to satisfy all people. Can I just tell you right now, if you try to make everybody happy, the end result is you'll make no one happy. Someone in this room needs to hear that right now. When you're a people pleaser, you do not please God, you please people. You don't fear God, you fear man. And man becomes great and God becomes small. Matter of fact, there's a great book out there by a guy named Dr. Ed Welsh, if you want to read it sometimes. When God is big, uh, people are big, God is small. Here's the problem with Pilate. Not only was he seeking to preserve his own position, he allowed the mob to control the discussion. The fear of man made him waver and delay when he knew what was right, and yet he didn't act on doing what was right. The fear of man led him to try to find someone else to decide the issue. Send him to Herod. Let Herod decide. All of a sudden, Herod kicks him back. So once again, Pilate's in this place that he, he refuses to take any responsibility, and then the mob takes over. Now it's in the court of public opinion, and I'm going to tell you right now, in the court of public opinion, no one wins. All of us, I could honestly probably say, I'll put this out there, we're pretty disgusted with the president's response to the bombings this past week. And I'm an equal president hater, just so you know. I, 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 I hate Biden, I hate Trump. In the sense that I believe these bo both men have flaws. And I hate a lot of things, that they, how they conduct themselves and their lack of character, lack of courage, lack of conviction. It's on both fronts. I pray for the president. And I pray for our rulers, but you need to know something that if you've been with us, I'm going to say bad things about Trump, I'm going to say bad things about Biden. But this week I saw parties come together because we're sitting there going, how does a president, why is he such a coward? And the most cowardly thing that happened wasn't just in what he was saying in the press conference the day after the bombings in Kabul. It's when he said to the press, Raise your hands if you thought, and he went, as if leading our country was left to the press and their opinions on things. I'm going to tell you right now, certain things need to be done because you're in a position to make a decision. Can I get an amen from somebody? Ministry is not a democracy. 
If all of a sudden, like, I held a meeting one day after church and said, okay, I'm going to invite all of you guys to kind of determine the direction of ministry, we'd be going in a million different directions. Ministry is not a democracy. The way our country is led, you want people in charge that are going to make hard decisions. And right now, we see a president who's not making hard decisions. And even kowtowing to the press to say, who thinks this? That doesn't matter. Men and women are dying and something needs to be done. Pilate, you don't go to the mob and say, hey guys, <laughs> raise your hand if you think Jesus should be set free. Pilate, this is not how decisions are made. He traded substantive conviction for gutless complacency. And that should never, ever happen, right? The moment you stop humanizing people and start politicizing them, then you've got a problem. Barabbas was a thief. He's a revolutionary. He's a murderer. He's a terrorist. And Jesus, even though maybe he had some misguided delusions of grandeur, according to Pilate, right, he is a man who was not dangerous or violent. And so Pilate goes to the crowd and says, what should we do? And all of a sudden, mob justice ensues. And I'm going to tell you right now, mob justice is no justice at all. One, one pastor said this, anytime you have to put a word in front of justice, it disqualifies the word justice altogether. Ladies and gentlemen, the only way to have justice in any situation is to care about truth more than we do about ourselves. Let me say this again. When we go to cultures, if we sacrifice the church, uh, truth, we will always miscarry justice. Listen to me, please. A judiciary with people ruled by their own political interests will soon give the people what they want rather than what is right. We live in a culture right now that disregards truth and only wants what we want. This is dangerous. You see how something 2,000 years ago can have so much application today? So Pilate was a man who had no conviction. Can I just tell you right now, there's nothing wrong with conviction. There's nothing wrong with me saying, I don't like any of the presidents, but I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them. Can anyone else say that in this room? Because if you're the person that says, only my president's right, you've got the wrong president. My president makes no mistake. Yes, they're all fallible. Can we just give it? We pray for them. We, 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 we're about policy. But you know what? There's so many presidents that have come and gone that just, they lack conviction. They tend to bow down to the whims of people. And you can't have people pleasers in place because you end up pleasing no one. Conviction is good. It's good in our homes. It's good in our schools. It's good in our government. It's good at local coffee houses. It's good in churches. But make sure your conviction doesn't run over people and leave behind a trail of human wreckage behind you. You know what Pilate ended up doing? He ended up killing himself. He was so indecisive, and I'm sure he was haunted by not doing what he knew needed to be done. And history says he took his own life. May you have the conviction this morning to do the greatest thing you could do sees Jesus. Don't send them off to the mob. Let them rule your heart. Last character in the narrative, Barabbas. We'll close with this. Because there's going to be someone here who says, well, I don't have an angry heart. I don't have an unbelieving heart. I don't have a hedonistic heart. And I certainly don't have an indecisive heart. Well, here's the fact that puts us all on level ground now before the cross of Jesus. We all have condemned hearts. There's this guy named Barabbas. We don't know anything about Barabbas outside the Gospels. You know what Barabbas' name means? Bar, son of, Abba, the father. Barabbas is any one of us. 
Barabbas had a name given to him that could describe any man, any woman. Can you imagine the morning Barabbas wakes up? There's, there's a spot on this hill called Golgotha waiting for him. He was condemned. He's going to be up there with two other thieves, right? Two other criminals. And all of a sudden, Barabbas is brought out. And can you imagine what's going through his mind? Like, here's a man who is probably wrestling with the fact that today he's going to die. And then someone says, Barabbas, you are now a free man. Wait, what? Yeah, they got this guy, Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Nothing, but they're going to crucify him. Can you imagine what's going through Barabbas' mind? He's a thug. He's a thug. He was not the, the nation's hero. This guy's a, he's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's a thief, right? And all of a sudden, he wakes up, and they tell him, Barabbas, you are now a free man. He's the first person in all of history that can honestly say, Jesus died not just for me, but instead of me. See, what we have in this account are two things that puts us all in the same place. Number one, Jesus the innocent was condemned. But Barabbas the guilty is pardoned. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. You and I know we deserve punishment. But the gospel says today is the day you've been set free. What? Today's the day someone who didn't deserve to die has now taken your place. And someone can say hallelujah this morning. You've been set free. Deep down inside, we know we're guilty. The weight of that guilt is heavy upon us all. And this is why when Jesus says in, in, in the Gospels, the truth will set you free, he embodies this. But you have to acknowledge the truth. You have to acknowledge how far you fall short of the glory of God. You have to acknowledge the fact that you are guilty and you are deserving of death. And you have to acknowledge the fact that one has come to stand in your place. And Christ has done that. So in a sense, we're all Barabbas, aren't we? Remember the movie Spartacus? When they all say, I am Spartacus. I feel like we all need to stand and say, I am Barabbas. <laughs> we have a God who has stood in our place. He has shown his love for us that while we're yet sinners, Christ has died for us. That's the good news, you guys. The, the world wants to crucify you. Heck, we want to crucify ourselves. But there's a God who says, I have come not to burden you, but I've come to set you free. Can I ask you a question? What are you going to do today as a result of this message? You've been given a ticket that says you're no longer guilty if you come to Jesus. What are you, what are you going to do about that? Here's my greatest prayer for you is that you will leave this place free from the burden of your sin because you know there's a God who's taking your sin and now you will live for him. I wonder what happened. Nothing, nothing's told about Barabbas. What do you think, how do you think Barabbas lived the rest of his life? I don't know. We can only speculate. But here's the question. How will you live the rest of your life knowing that there's a God who stood in your place and took the guilt that you deserve and says to you, go now. Sin no more. The truth has set you free. How are you going to live your lives today? How are you going to live your lives tomorrow? All I know is that I can just say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good to us, for providing a, a substitute like Christ. 
Only you could take the penalty upon yourself that we so justly deserve and take that punishment so that we will now in Christ no longer stand condemned. What freedom, what liberty, what life, what joy. Thank you, God, for loving us as, as deeply as you do. Thank you for the gospel message which sets us free. I pray, Lord, that we would seize Christ more than we want to seize anything else in life. And Lord, my prayer is that you would be glorified in all of our words and all of our deeds and all of our actions and all of our motives. Lord, let us live lives as men and women who have been set free. And let's share that message with others. There's a lot of people who are, are, are self-condemned. They are, they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're empty, they're, they're disillusioned, they're wandering, Lord, and we've got the answer. Help us to point others to, to the hope that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this community, this church family, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who was our everything. And we pray this in, in his mighty and powerful name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give his grace and peace forever and ever. Have a great day, guys. See you at bowling.